This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. What is the real cost of discipleship? Well, the Lord Jesus laid it out for us in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And the Lord adds, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. These are stunning words, but they're they are, and they are likely particularly stunning to us Americans who are used to having religious freedom and every material advantage known to man. Christianity isn't supposed to be hard, right? Well, that's probably why, as my next guest points out, the church in our day is so weak, so ineffective, so worldly, and so cowardly. The Lord who laid down his own life to pay for our sin and rose again to secure our salvation deserves so much better from us. But will we repent and wake up and pursue him on the narrow way? We're going to talk about this today with Matt Walsh of The Daily Wire. He's also host of the podcast, The Matt Walsh Show, and author of the book we'll be talking about right now called Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to Complacent Christians. Matt, wonderful to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Talk a little bit, if you would, about Church of Cowards. I agree with what you're saying in this book. I think it's a wake-up call for all of us, but how do you think cowardice has really defined a lot of what we see in modern Christianity? Well, I think uh, you find it in, in several different facets of, uh, of Christianity and of the Church. And, you know, you could look, first of all, at so many Church leaders, of course, not, not all of them, we're just speaking generally here, but in so many cases, the, the leaders of the Church have uh, decided, and this has been happening over the course of many decades now, have decided that uh, they don't want to engage on moral issues, uh, on on the issues that really matter in our culture, and yep. speak to those issues, and show leadership, yep. and call their flocks to repentance and sacrifice and uh, obedience, and all of these things. I guess because the idea is that uh, it'll scare people away, and, and that uh, we won't be tolerant enough, won't sound tolerant enough. And I think that there are many reasons for that, but cowardice, moral cowardice, is part of the part of the the, the uh, motivation there. And then even I think we have to face just as Average Christians, as as members of the flock, uh, as congregants like myself, people in the pews, many of us, I think, have gotten complacent and, and far too comfortable and uh, afraid of, of making sacrifices. Oh, I agree and with so you. And so know, the book deals with that. Too. Yeah, totally right. Well, you talk, for example, about churches without crosses, churches without religious symbols. I've never liked that either. What do our very buildings tell the world, do you think, about what we think of Jesus Christ? Do we look like we're ashamed of the gospel? Because this has been going on since the church growth movement really kind of came up through the 1980s. I've never liked it. I know a lot of other Christians don't really like it. What do you think about that? These where houses with no indication on the outside in the architecture or anything else that this is a gathering of people who are sold out to Jesus Christ. Yeah, and well, listen, if, if you live in a, in a place, well, let's say you live in a persecuted country and, and uh, you, you have no choice but to meet 
you know, in some nondescript building or in a home or, you know, back as they used to, as Christians used to do in the catacombs or caves. Of course, in that case, then that's what you do, and that and that glorifies God all the same. So, but in in this country, that's not what we face. And so, what you find are are wealthy Christian communities that have plenty of money to spend on building a church, and oftentimes there's a decision made to build it in a way that it so that it won't look like a church, as if they're trying to hide from persecution. Yeah, which, which they're not. Yeah, uh, it, it, and, it, and it seems like they're ashamed. They don't want people to know. They don't want to broadcast too loudly. That, hey, this is a church. They're, 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 in many cases, it doesn't even say the word church anywhere on the church. And you could you could say all you want. That, well, what does that matter? It doesn't have to say church. But but I would come at it from the other perspective, from the other direction. Why why not put it on there? What are you afraid of? What are you ashamed of? It's a church. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Why don't you want people to know that? Exactly. Well, and they would say we don't want to offend anybody. We want to have as many people who don't know the Lord come to our church as possible, and that might turn them off. Well, if that's what you need to do in order to bring people in, then what kind of gospel will they get when they come through your doors anyway? It's it's a self fulfilling prophecy that you're going to water down the gospel if that's your approach. Exactly. If people are, if you're bringing people in who don't want to be in a church, and so you what tricks them into walking in the doors? Well, if you if you give them the real gospel, they're just going to go running right 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 back out the doors again yeah. because you you got them in on false pretenses. Yeah. So what what ends up happening? What ends up happening most of the time is that what's happening inside the building is reflected by what the building looks like. And so if it's if it's a building that's afraid to look like a church, then oftentimes the message is is also a message. That uh, where it seems like they're afraid to you know advertise themselves as Christian. Yeah, for sure. You have a great title. I mean, it's a sad title, but I think it's accurate. Christians not worth killing is the title of the first chapter in your book. Why do you think American Christians or maybe those who call themselves Christians aren't behaving like Christians? I talk about this a lot. I have the same concerns you do. What really concerns you when you look at people who are professing Jesus Christ and and yet their behavior does not line up with that same profession? I think we have to ask ourselves the question, um, you know, if if we are Christian and somebody were to follow us around on on, on, on any given day, and see what we do, and, and the things that we say, and the choices that we make, and, and even the way we dress, and the kinds of entertainment that we choose to partake in, everything, you know. And they were to see that, and then they were to compare it with just Joe Schmo, secular atheist guy, would they see any real difference? Would there be really any significant difference in, in the things that we do and say, and how we conduct ourselves, as compared to someone who is not a Christian? I think for so many of us, the answer is no, that if someone were following us around in that way, they, they wouldn't be able to really tell that we're Christians based on anything that we've said or done or, or, or how we conduct ourselves. And, uh, and, and that's part of this uh, dynamic where we are being encouraged as Christians to blend in with the culture yep. and not just to, to resist it and not to stand up and fight against it. Um, and to be tolerant and so on and so forth. Oh, you're so right about that. And going back to what you said a few minutes ago, when you talk about Christian leaders not wanting to offend anybody, and part of what ails us is the men behind the pulpit. But that's that really became obvious to me. And I've told this story, I think, once before on the show. But when I went to the March for Marriage in Washington, this was the day that Prop 8 was being heard and the DOMA cases were being heard at the Supreme Court. The lack of big mega church pastors and their congregants was 
jarring to me because I said, we have these massive churches across America. Where are these Christians at a a really important moment in our cultural history and and our political history when you are seeing these important cases being decided on homosexuality and what will go forward from here? Where are all the Christians? But isn't that kind of an important point here that if your Christianity is not making a difference in your life, then what kind of Christianity are you professing? Exactly. And we, I think the numbers will tell us that 80% or 75% or whatever it is of the country is Christian. And we know that the, the real number is much lower than that. And, and this is what you mentioned is one of the ways we know it, because if all of us, if, if there were hundreds of millions of, uh, of, of actual Christians in this country, then we wouldn't have, you know, marriage would not be in a state that it is. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be seeing millions of babies being killed in the womb in abortion clinics because as a christian culture we would stand up and rise up we would not tolerate that it just simply could not happen we wouldn't allow it to continue uh it only happens because either there are many christians who support it or more commonly they don't care enough to stand up and fight against it yeah i agree do you think a lot of this goes back to money for some of these big church pastors that they don't want to lose people from giving to their church they don't want to offend anybody step on anybody's toes do you th- do you think that's much of a factor in all of this the fear of losing funding absolutely fear of losing funding fear of uh you know the, the fear of, of reprisals in terms of the, you know being tax exempt um if you get too political there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear tied up in it and some of it is is uh, is perhaps warranted in, in the in the in the in the sense that what they're worried about happening may in fact happen. I mean, you know, if you if you're in a big mega church and you've got a lot of big donors, thousands of people coming in, and um, all of a sudden one day you start to decide to get up there and start really preaching the gospel and engaging on these issues, you probably will scare many of them away, and you're going to lose a lot of money. That's true. Um, I'm not going to pretend that you won't, but. It, this, it, I, we're, we're told in the gospel repeatedly that these are sacrifices we're supposed to be willing to make. We That's have to right. be willing to make. You're right. You're right. Hang on a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break with Matt Walsh. Church of Cowards is his book. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League, International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, I really appreciate this new book from Matt Walsh, Church of Cowards. Matt from the Daily Wire. We are so complacent oftentimes in the United States, and we see the contrast, Matt, as we hear about all these persecuted Christians around the globe. And you were making the point before when we were talking about how much funding may have to do with some of the fear that big pastors have of taking a stand on controversial issues. But look at the contrast. You look at persecuted Christians in parts of the Middle East and Africa, Nigeria, places like this, who are giving their very lives to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I think about the ISIS uh, beheadings on that beach where you had all of those men who refused to deny Jesus Christ and were beheaded. And and you think about this, go, going back to this title that you have in your first chapter, were Christians not worth killing precisely because you doubt, it would seem, that we would have the same stance if we were really persecuted. And I, I'm not really sure we would have the same response. What, what are your thoughts on all of that? And Right, and I think that, uh, of course, none of us can really know what we would do in that situation. So I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, if it was me, I would be... I'd, I'd be laying down my life. I hope that I would, but I can't say that I would. Um, and I think we're, we've gotten so comfortable in this culture and so used to that comfort that the idea of sacrificing anything, I mean, forget about sacrificing your life. And the question, one of the questions I ask in the book is, you know, look at your own life and ask yourself, have you sacrificed anything at all for your faith? Hmm. Uh, I mean, really anything. Have you made any real significant sacrifices of any kind? I think a lot of us would have to say, no, not really. And, uh, I find that even a conversation like our entertainment choices, when I talk about that, and I, you know, if, if you if you suggest to uh, uh, your fellow Christians that hey, you know, this show that you guys are watching might not be might not be the most edifying thing. Maybe we should think about not watching that show. Uh, maybe we should think more about entertainment that, that brings us closer to God. Even something like that, the the backlash and the response you're going to get from a lot of Christians is vicious because the idea that they would even have to give up some Netflix show that they don't that they enjoy. <laughs> Is uh, is they they sort of draw the line there. So you have to ask yourself, you know, if you're not willing to give up a Netflix show, for example, then is there any chance that you would actually allow your head to be cut off uh, for your faith? Mm. Probably not. Yeah, very convicting. I, I think about that because a lot of people in evangelicalism, for example, will look back on the old days, all oh, those legalists who didn't want to go to the movies and didn't want to dance and didn't want to do anything. I'm sure there was some legalism involved, but for a lot of those Christians, it was just a matter of doing what you're talking about. I am not of this world. I am a Christian. I have a different master than this world does, and I need to obey him, and that needs to be lived out in my daily life. And these days, you go on Twitter and you try to talk about why watching Game of Thrones might be a bad idea for a Christian and you get screamed at. How dare you, you legalist? I mean, how did we get the idea that obeying God and pursuing a life of holiness is legalism? 
yeah, well, it's, it's an easy, it's a cover for people who don't want, and I, I think the people who engage in that, and they, who, who respond that way, I think at some level they must know what they're doing. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think I know that because we've all, we've all been there before. I mean, I, I, I've had moments where someone says something to me about my own conduct or something that I'm doing, and my first reaction is kind of, how dare you? What, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So we've all had moments like that, and, uh, and you start rationalizing, but we have, to, we have to back away from that and realize that you know, this, isn't about, this isn't about being holier than thou or self-righteous. It's just about, do you, do you believe these things that you claim to believe or not? And, and if you do believe them, then obviously that should have an impact, significant impact on everything you do and everything you, you say and even the entertainment choices that you make. Totally right. Matt, would you talk a little bit about this problem of us bowing in submission? You talk about this in your book as well, and I think that's especially noticeable on the LGBT issue and how I see at least the church capitulating right and left basically on everything or most everything that Big Gay is pushing for. I mean, what are your thoughts on the capitulation that you see within churches today on that issue? Maybe some others, but that one is a real big one, the LGBT issue. I think uh, it, culturally, uh, on the LGBT issue, it, it's been lost culturally by by Christians. Uh, we because we become so so overwhelmed by by the other side of it, and and that's and that's because I think you know I, I, there are many things that go into it. We could talk about that for hours, but I think one of the things that's happened is the other side of that debate uh, hasn't really been presenting arguments. Instead, they just scream the word bigot at you, no matter what you say, if you, if you don't go along with everything they want. Yep. To include at this point things like um, agreeing with drag queen story hours at the library, yeah. you're sending your kids in to have stories read to them by drag queens. Even something like that, if you don't agree with it, you're a bigot, and they just shout bigot, bigot, bigot. And what we've discovered, apparently, is that that's a very powerful, I, I call it an argument, it's not, but that's a very powerful argument, quote-unquote, uh, because many people just, they, they, they can't handle being called that. And we have to get to a point where, look, first of all, Actual bigotry is a terrible thing. We all agree with that. But standing up for your own moral values, that's not bigotry. And yeah. saying this or that is a sin, that's not bigotry. Um, it's only a bigotry if you're, if you're looking at one group and saying, well, they're the only sinners, and I'm perfect. Okay, that's bigotry. But as long as that's not your message, you're saying, hey, we're all sinners. We all have a moral law that we have to comply with or should comply with. I'm, I'm under that same umbrella as you. Um, that's not bigotry at all. And so we have, we have to realize that, and we also have to get to a point where these fallacious, lazy claims of bigotry just don't bother us where they just roll off our back yep. and uh, I think that's the point we have to get to oh yeah and, and getting back to your earlier point if you can't stand being called a bigot or a hater or a homophobe how in the world are you going to really stand for your faith when the persecution ramps up in a way this is a bit of a test what are we made of as Christians if we can't stand firmly on our biblical principles and say no you're not going to have a guy in a dress and a boa reading stories to my two-year-old and then allowing the two-year-old to flop on the floor with this guy. I mean, if you can't take a stand on that sort of issue, how in the world are you going to stand on anything that's difficult? Right. I mean, that's, and that's what really scares me about some of this, uh, the, the more extreme things we're seeing now, the drag queen story hours and the, the gender stuff and, uh, you know, sending men into to the, to the girls' bathroom and that sort of thing. It's, it's so extreme. It's so absurd. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't just defy morality, but it defies common sense. Yeah. Totally irrational, these things that we're seeing. And it should be really easy to argue against. And, and the fact is, I, I think almost everyone disagrees with it. You, you talk about having a, you know, a man fighting, boxing or something against a woman, saying pretending to be a woman, uh, or, or these boys that, that race against girls on the track team because they say they're girls. 
almost everyone you talk to says, this is crazy. This, this doesn't make any sense. Right. But yet we allow it to continue because this, that label of bigotry is, is so powerful for so many people that we would, rather, we, we would rather have our culture descend into madness and see the destruction of, for example, women's sports. We'd rather have that happen than risk being called a bigot. I know. You're right on the money about that, and it's a shame. And you talk also about Christian culture and secular culture not being able to merge into one, which is absolutely right. We're supposed to remember as Christians that we're in the world, but we're not of it. We seem to have mixed that up in our modern American culture. How would you call Christians back to understanding this idea that if you're not of the world, the Bible actually means that, that you're not of the world, you are to stand apart, you are set apart by God as his ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I mean, what do you think is the real wake-up call that needs to be issued at this time? I think we have to realize that secular culture, I mean, you said before about different masters, secular culture has a different master, uh, and they are, it's 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 more it's its foundation is in something entirely different and opposite from and antithetical to the gospel and so that that simply means and I wish it wasn't that way I, I wish we lived in a Christian culture we don't though unfortunately so uh, what that, that what that means is that if we want to be Christians then we're going to have we're, we are going to be living in a way that is different from and seems foreign to so much of the rest of the culture. And that, again, is, is right in the gospel. Uh, we're, we're warned that that's the way that it's going to be. And you know what? It's also, what I try to tell people is, it's not such a bad thing, because it's not like what the secular culture is selling is, is something wonderful and joyful. People aren't happy in secular culture. People are depressed. There's drug, drug abuse, suicide, I mean, alcoholism is skyrocketing, all these things, which tells you that people are unhappy. They, they can't find meaning in their lives. They're in despair. That's what secular culture is selling. It's not very appealing when you think about it. Um, and so it, sh- it shouldn't be so difficult in the end to reject it. Right, exactly. What What do you want to keep from this secular culture when you see all the moral rot that's running through the sewers of uh, immorality that we have in our streets today? It's just insane. What about our kids, Matt? What would you say about the issue of educating our kids and making sure that they are very much our focus in, in really making sure that they don't go the way of our secular culture right now? I think people are very afraid of, you hear the phrase I talk about in the book of, you don't want to put your kid in a bubble. Uh, but I, I, I guess I'm strange. I happen to think that, at least with our young kids, that's exactly what we should be doing as yep. Christians, as parents, yep. uh, effectively, putting, putting them in a bubble. And, and what that means is, um, is that we're, it's a bubble of protection. We're, we're trying to preserve their innocence. We're trying to protect them spiritually, morally, even physically. And, uh, and equip them, get them ready to go out into the world and to be warriors for Christ. But at the age of six years old or seven or eight or nine or ten or twelve, they're not ready yet. They have not been equipped. They're not prepared to do it. And if you send them out without that protection, without that so-called bubble, and just throw them out into the world, feed them to the wolves, they're going to get devoured, almost all of them. Kids are not strong enough. They, they can't be. It's not, it's not too much to ask of them to expect them to go out. I know parents will say, well, you know, I want my kid to be a light to others, a light in the- yeah, not now. Your seven-year-old is not going to be a light to anyone. Your seven-year-old doesn't know anything. He needs, he needs to be guided. He needs to, he needs to help you help him put on the armor of Christ. He doesn't have it on yet. Right. He's not old enough for that. Right. Um, so you're, just, you're asking too much of him, and I think we have to give kids that, that insulation from the world so that they can grow into them 
themselves and grow into their faith. Yeah, good thoughts. Matt, when you look around, and I know there's so much to be depressed about, but what gives you hope, if anything, right now? It, it may be that we've reached the bottom of the barrel or we're so near it that things might turn around, the Lord might grant us repentance and crying out to Him again. Do you, do you have any cause for hope right now when you're looking across the spectrum? Well, we know ultimately there's uh, all the cause in the world for hope because we've seen We've, we've read the, the last page of the book, as it were, and we, we know where all this is headed ultimately. So there's, there's, of course, we have that hope there always. In terms of right, in terms of right now and in, and in culture, uh, I, I do have some hope in the fact that uh, there is a core of younger, uh, in the younger generation, of people who are hungry for true faith um, and, and want to reject a lot of what the culture is selling. You go to some of the really conservative Orthodox churches that are on fire for the faith, doing things in a more traditional way. Many of them are, are, are young, young families Good. Uh, with people that are very excited about the pro-life movement. It's a young movement as well. And so that's, that's hope that I find there. I love it. Matt Walsh, Church of Cowards. Thanks a lot, Matt. God bless you. Thank you. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here. It is the age-old universal question, why am I here? And I'm not talking about on your radio. I'm talking about in general, because for the Christian, the question is, why did God put me here? But either way, it is the nature of mankind to understand the reason for his existence. Why is that such a common experience? And how do we answer that question for those who don't yet know why they are here? We're going to talk about it today with Richard Simmons III, who is founder of the Center for Executive Leadership and author of the book we're about to discuss. It is called The Reason for Life, Why Did God Put Me Here? And so good to have you here, Richard. How are you? I'm well, Janet. How are you? Doing great. This really is an age-old question, isn't it? Everybody at some point seems to be asking this. Why am I here anyway? Yeah, this is a question I think that uh, gnaws at everybody. And I think, however, it's not something that we necessarily uh, talk much about. But I think it's uh, not that we're embarrassed about it, but I, I just I'm not sure that Many people have a real answer for it, but I think it's 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 part of our wiring. It's the way that God designed us. Um, in fact, uh, USA Today had a survey, and they a, a large random survey, and they went out and asked a number of people, if you could ask God any question and be guaranteed an answer, what would you ask Him? And the number one response uh, overwhelmingly was, "I'd like to know why did He put me here? Hmm. What is the reason for my life?" Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people do wonder about that. Although it's interesting with the advent of the new atheists and the popularity of the new atheists all over the internet, there seem to be people who now will say, life really doesn't mean anything. Life doesn't mean anything. Death doesn't mean anything. When I die, I'm just going to go into the ground and that's going to be it for me. But do you think those people really feel good about that answer? Do you think people can really be settled thinking my life has no meaning at all and when I go into the ground, that's it and that's fine with me? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great question. I think that, 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 that deep down everybody is troubled by uh, the, the thought that they are going to die and, and go into everlasting nothingness. And I don't think that, uh, uh, that you can be settled with that because 
you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that, you know, God has put eternity in our hearts. Yes. And that we know we are eternal beings. And for that reason, you know, we can say that, uh, you know, that there is no God and therefore there is no purpose in this life, that we're just a bunch of, of chemicals that have come together and, uh, and, and are alive and we die and we go into, uh, you know, we're food for the worms and we go into everlasting nothingness. But I think that there's something instinctive uh, within us that tells us, no, uh, that, you know, I, I am eternal and I won't, you know, there's, there's this, uh, I guess you could call it a, a desire for permanence because that's the way we were made. Well, it's interesting when you bring that up, that passage about we have eternity in our hearts, which we clearly do. What does it say, do you think, about the nature of man that he does care about the meaning of life? Because certainly you don't see dogs and cats sitting around wondering about why am I here? Why do I exist? That is a unique feature of being a human being. How do you take that reality and make the point to somebody? The very fact that you're asking that question proves there's something special about you. Right, and that that really kind of leads into the uh, the heart of this book is that if in fact uh, life uh, has purpose, um, and we you have to realize and recognize that purpose <laughs> implies design, and in order to obviously uh, to be designed, you have to have a designer. Yeah, and that leads into you know from a, from a Christian perspective, uh, what did God the designer? What did He have in mind when He put us here? And I lay out uh, two, I think, very significant clues uh, about this. Uh, the first is, which is, you know, I think most people are aware of, is that it says we are designed in the image of God. It doesn't mean that we are God. It means that we are endowed with a number of His characteristics. Right. Um, you know, we can think reason uh, and be creative because God thinks reasons and is creative. Uh, most significantly, He made us to be relational beings, uh, because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been in relationship throughout eternity. Yes. And so we, first and foremost, we are relational beings. Uh, and then the second clue is, is, is something that people don't really talk about much, but it's very biblical. Uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, we exist for Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Colossians 1, 16 says, we have been created by Him and for Him. Um, in Isaiah forty three twenty one, it makes a comment. Uh, God makes the assertion that he talks about the people who I formed for myself. So when you take those two clues and you put them together, we have been created in the image of God. We are relational beings. God made us for himself. And that's why we're here, to be in relationship with him, to walk through life with him. And it's, it's the same reason parents have children. We anticipate a lifelong relationship uh, with our children. And the, the, the same, if you get right down to it, the same thinking went into, why did God put us here? Yeah. And it's like Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts will not find rest until they rest in thee. Yes, great quote, great quote. I love, though, that what you've said there about purpose implies design, and design implies a designer. And yet you see people turning off that spigot of logic. And when you think about this, people who are otherwise very intelligent, deep thinking people in other realms of life come to the issue of Christianity sometimes and just turn that spigot up. No, I'm not going to follow that line of reasoning. Do you think fundamentally that really is about autonomy? I don't want to answer to anybody. I want to be the master of my own destiny. Is that primarily what you see as what keeps people from following the logic of why I'm here and what could be behind the reason I'm here? Now, I think you're absolutely right. Um, 
I think that, you know, the, in the, the Psalms it says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. It doesn't say he says it in his mind. I think so, so many of the people that are skeptics today, when it gets right down to it, it's an act of the will. As you just said, they, they, there's this desire for autonomy to be a law unto myself. Um, you know, that's the, really the nature, the heart of sin. Yeah. Sin is, I want to have my way in, my, in life. Um, you know, it says in Isaiah, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Yes. You know, I want to live for me. It's my life. I'll do what I want. And that goes against, basically, uh, the, the, I guess, the realization of if I'm going to believe in God and follow him, I've got to surrender myself to him. And I don't want to do that. And that's basically what happened in the life of C.S. Lewis. He, he basically realized that he said, the reason I love atheism so much is, <clears throat> you know, I can kind of live the life the, way, the, the, the life, I can live life the way I want to live it. Yeah, right. And then he finally became a believer in God and then believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And the first thing he recognized that he had to do was to surrender his heart to him. Yes. And so, yeah, I think that's really right. What you've just, the question that you've asked really kind of nails the problem of, of, the, of the skeptic and his belief. Yeah, it doesn't want to give up any kind of moral authority to anybody above him. But, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about a comment a friend of mine made back in college. We were talking about atheism, and he said, if I really were an atheist, though, I don't know if I'd want to live another day. Because what is the point? Life is filled with pain and suffering and you watch other people die and you go through tough times and life is hard. Just turn on the news. You have to take that in every day. Why would you stay here a day longer if you believed it was all for naught? And I thought, well, that's kind of stunning to to think of it like that. But the hopelessness of continuing in existence without not just knowing where you fit into the scheme of the universe that God made you and created you to exist for him, but also without any hope of self. Salvation, and that's something that you really get into in the heart of your book. That that is correct. And what you just said, the, the word hope, I think, is such a significant word that we are hope-based creatures, and it's very difficult for us to live without hope. Uh, in fact, I make the argument that that's the reason that the suicide rate has gone up so dramatically is because um, people that really struggle with depression and 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 uh, get down and have despair. It's because they look at the future, and there's no hope. Right. If there is no God, uh, there is no eternity, then it, it can very easily um, lead to depression. And as the person remarked to you, you know, why, why, why keep on living? It's pointless. And the, the beauty of, 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 of our faith is that we are here for a reason, uh, and when we connect with Him, when we live in relationship with Him, uh, we find meaning, we find purpose, that God has a plan for our lives. Yeah. Um, and uh, as the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is to then to live my life for Christ, but then when I die, that's the gain. Oh man, that's so true. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back to Richard Simmons III. His book is called The Reason for Life. We'll be back right after this on Janet Mepper Today.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. And in January, we are honoring the preborn and the more than 60 million babies whose lives have been tragically ended through abortion. The Ministry of Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. By equipping pregnancy centers with free ultrasounds, Preborn is able to meet abortion-minded women at their darkest hour and shine the light of Jesus. You see, when a young mom considering abortion walks into a preborn center, it's a divine appointment where she encounters the love of Christ and the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her. I feel like it was meant for me to have this faith. This is something God gave me for a reason. 80% of women in crisis choose life after meeting their baby on ultrasound. Would you please join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 350 babies? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody said. The Ministry of Preborn is seeking heroes right now who will partner with them to give the gift of life to babies in crisis. Preborn believes it is God's heart to save the preborn from the abortion genocide. Would you please join with Preborn and all of us here at Janet Mefford today to help choose life for 350 babies? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward the cause of life. One ultrasound session costs $28 and for a gift of $140 you can sponsor five ultrasounds but any gift of any amount will help. $100, $200 or even a gift of $15,000 will buy an ultrasound machine. Call 855-402-BABY 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today, chatting with Richard Simmons III, who is founder of the Center for Executive Leadership and author of the book we're discussing called The Reason for Life. Why did God put me here? And you might be one of those people just tuning in randomly in your car and you're asking, I was just, what? I was just asking that same question. Why did God put me here? I was wrestling with this. And I think this is a divine appointment. And Richard and I are discussing why it is God put you here. Richard, you were making the point before we went to the break that we are here for a reason. And it's not just a matter of saying, what does God want me to do with my life or with my kids or with my finances and all those basics of life? But ultimately, what does it mean to have a relationship with the Lord? For a lot of people, maybe even tuning in right now, they don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, the... uh, uh as we were discussing before about being in relationship with him, that that's why he put us here. He put us here because we are relational beings, and he put us here to, as it says in Scripture, he made us for himself. And the the problem is uh, that so many people don't recognize and understand this, and that you just can't say, all right, well, I, I, you know, I want to be in a relationship with God. Well, what do I do? And so in the in the book, uh, I go through basically. Uh, using a lot of illustrations and describe uh, and explain that, you know, as human beings, uh, we are separated from God because of our sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And I share all the scripture that's, uh, that, that goes with that, because ultimately, uh, to have a relationship with God, to go to heaven, um, you basically, and be in the presence of a holy God, uh, you've got two choices. One, you have got to lead a perfectly holy life, which is not going to happen, 
or you need to experience God's forgiveness. And so I go through and explain how that, you know, how that forgiveness happens, uh, about what Jesus did for us at the cross, and that ultimately you have to enter into a relationship with him. And I go through and talk about what does it mean to believe? Because, you know, you, you hear the, 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 so many scriptures that talks about, you know, to, to believe in Jesus. What does that really mean? And so many people don't understand that believe, it's a very friendly word in English, but the word in the Greek, pistio, means basically to entrust yourself to. It's like to surrender yourself to someone. Yes. And that's so much different from just, you know, believing something in my head. And I, I walk through people and, and show them how they can enter into that relationship with Christ. And, I, Janet, I tell you what's most interesting is comparing, uh, and, and so many people don't realize this, that... Um, Entering into a relationship with Christ is, is pictured also, basically, by the church as entering in, like entering into a relationship with your spouse. There's a picture that entering into a relationship with Christ is pictured um, to the marriage relationship. Because Jesus, four different, in four different occasions, refers to himself as the bridegroom. Right. And, you know, the church is considered the bride. And therefore, you enter into a relationship with him, a covenant relationship. There are only two covenant relationships in life, your relationship with your spouse and your relationship with God. I could go on and on and talk about this, but as you can see, this is very significant for me. This is the way we, in the men's ministry that I work with, this is the way we present the gospel to men. That's great. And and you really got to the beginning of it, which is we're sinners. This is the fundamental thing. Before we ever talk about the need for salvation, there has to be a reason laid out why we need it in the first place. And the problem is we live in this nation in this time, I would say, where we really think we're pretty good. I mean, we turn on the TV and we hear, I should buy this hair dye because I'm worth it. I mean, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, that used to be kind of a shocking thing, but nowadays hedonism is pretty cool and we think we're pretty good. What do you do with someone who says, I, I'm not that bad. I, I don't really think I need Jesus because I can understand the drunk over there in the gutter or somebody who's really led a terrible life, a killer, something like that. But me, I try hard. I'm a good guy. I have a good wife. I'm good to my kids. I'm honest. <laughs> what do you say to that person? Yeah, that's one of the important parts of this is explaining what sin is. Um, I live here in the South and in the Bible Belt, and most people think that sin is just uh, uh, d- uh, drinking, smoking, cussing, watching R-rated movies. Yeah. But I, I really get into and talk about what, what is sin? What is the nature of sin? And ultimately, it's, it's sin is an, it's an attitude of your heart, and that um, you basically, it, it's an attitude of the heart that says, I want my way in life. It's like that old song, it's my life and I'll do what I want. Hmm. And then often we'll even go through and say, you know, sin is not just something that you do outwardly or something you say, uh, but then I get into the fact that it's, it, God looks at the intent of your heart. He looks at your motives. And then point out that Jesus says, you know, if you've, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Yes. If you have ever uh, been angry at your brother, you've committed, uh, you've committed murder in your heart. And when, you, when you, can, you get down to it in those terms, uh, people then begin to recognize the, uh, uh, you know, the, the nature of their sinfulness, and they recognize they are sinners. Because using really, ultimately, Janet, when you use the law, it acts as a mirror that enables people to see their sin and recognize that they are sinners. And then all you have to point out is what it says in James, if you've committed one sin, it's that you're as guilty as if you've yes. committed 
all, all the, are broken all the laws and committed all sins. That's the verse I was thinking about when you were talking about that. Exactly right. Because even if we say, I'm not that bad of a sinner, you're right. James 2.10 talks about the person who keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So we're all in trouble. We have the, the greatest democracy at the foot of the cross. We're all guilty. We're all in trouble. But receiving Christ by faith also entails, as we know as Christians, discipleship, where Jesus says in the Great Commission that we have to go out and make disciples, not just believers. And you think of Jesus' very difficult call in Matthew chapter 16, where he said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, that's definitely not easy believism. So what would you say the Christian life really entails once you are saved, once you have been forgiven for your sins? Then what? What is the Christian life to be like, according to the Bible? Well, that's, that's, that's a wonderful question, and I think that um, one of the things that I, I try to explain is when you, are, uh, when you approach Jesus and you are considering Him uh, as your Savior and your Lord, you basically have to, it begins by surrender, a willingness to rent, surrender yourself. And that's, you know, you go through, and it's amazing the number of times the Scripture talks about repentance. Yes. But what so many people don't understand, Janet, is that they see Christianity, in, in, I think, uh, in such a distorted way that, that following Christ, what does that really mean? Um, and, you know, they see it as following a bunch of rules and regulations. Where well, I try to make it very clear, and I, I, I do this and point this out in the book, that you're not following a bunch of rules and regulations. Basically, in one sense, you are following an owner's manual that shows you how to live and how to flourish in this life. Hmm. And that when you, when you give up your life to follow Christ, basically, he wants to lead you to a life that really flourishes. You know, he wants the very best for you. As it says in, in Isaiah forty-eight seventeen, that, you know, he wants to basically teach us what is best for our lives. And the world doesn't see it that way, and it's unfortunate uh, and so that's one of the reasons uh, that this book is intended to help people really understand the gospel and then what the Christian life is all about. Well, that's so important. The The message of repentance is such a vital part of people understanding what it takes to become a Christian. It's not just a matter of adding Jesus onto your life as you know it and continue on doing exactly, exactly as you've done before. But I mean, this is the thing. If we're for Christ, we're against the world. It really is a separation from your old life, becoming a new creature in Christ. You have a completely new life once you become a Christian. Absolutely. And, you know, the Spirit comes in and begins to do a work in your life. And, um, you know, the entire, uh, uh, I think, purpose of the book is to lead people to Christ and then to what does it mean to really then walk with Him. Right. And it's in walking with Him that we find the real purpose that we're talking about and the real meaning of life. And life begins to make sense. And you understand not only your life, but you understand death. Death makes sense. And it all comes together, you know, in in Christ. It does. Richard, what would you say if you could encapsulate the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, why it is you can live today without any despair? Well, Jesus is is our ultimate hope. And I love the way the Apostle Paul says it, that we basically put our hope not just in any God, but we put our hope in the God who raises the dead. As we're approaching Easter in the next couple of months, to me, that is the ultimate hope that we have. And you have to have hope, Janet, to live an abundant life, because if you don't have hope in the future, then this life will be nothing but a life of despair. And that's the, that's the beauty of the gospel, 
um, is that we have a hope that cannot be taken away from us. Oh, I love that. Amen and amen. The name of the book, The Reason for Life, Why Did God Put Me Here by Richard Simmons III. And you've been so good here, Richard. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you about your wonderful book. God bless you and thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Janet. I appreciate it. Oh, you are so welcome. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We've come to a close, but we'll be back next time. Thanks a lot for listening. God bless you. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. 